Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to the World Business Report podcast from the BBC World Service. Namaste, I'm Devina Gupta. And on this edition, we're talking about, for the first time, the European Union has sanctioned 200 Chinese and Indian companies which have links with Russia. But will it impact Russia's economy in any way? We hear more about it. And we also head to Germany in a bit to find out why Europe's largest economy is in trouble. From India, we speak to a farmer union leader as protests intensify near its capital city. All of that coming up for you on World Business Report, so stay with me. But first to South Africa, where the finance minister started his budget speech earlier with this. According to two prominent economists, a crude distinction between economics and politics would be that economics is concerned with expanding the pie, while politics is about distributing it. Expanding the pie or distributing it, well, the lines are blurred over there as the finance minister of South Africa delivered this last budget before elections are due in the country in May. Sluggish economy and unemployment are two big issues for the voters there. So in this election year budget, a big resolve is also to tap into gold and foreign reserve to service huge debt of the country. And that's when the government is spending more than it can earn from taxes and other sources. So to make more sense of this, let's get in Davi Root, who is chief economist of the Efficient Group, joining us from Johannesburg. Thank you for being with us. Your view on what... The government is trying to do this balancing act between not trying to balloon its debt, dipping into its gold and currency reserves just ahead of election year. Uh, Good afternoon to you. Well, I think you've covered most of this, but this is pretty much an election-focused budget, without a doubt. Uh, The reality is that the South African economy is hardly growing. It's uh, basically very unlikely that the economy can carry a further increase in the tax burden. You you mentioned he started off with the speech of the of the Minister of Finance. And if you analyze the fiscal accounts in South Africa, you will find that the fiscal accounts are probably the most redistributive fiscal accounts in the world. So the Minister of Finance is taking a lot of money from people that are not getting the benefits from that. And the reason why that is so is because of the extremely high levels of unemployment and poverty in South Africa. So the economy is not performing. The fiscal accounts are in deep trouble. The state-owned enterprises have just all but collapsed. And the same goes to the local authorities. So I, I disagree with the minister on his estimates on future economic growth. And I think what the minister is certain, certainly trying to do here is trying to put lipstick on a pig. This is not going to make much of a difference. The reality is, is that the South African economy is mismanaged. And the reality is that the fiscal accounts has become unstable. Well, you are pretty rash in your assessment there, Darby. Lipstick on a pig. I haven't heard any budget being described like that. But let me get another perspective here. Barry Berman is a business owner at Finesa Cars and Vehicle Administration Industry in South Africa. 
Barry, uh, a lot of these problems are also coming to haunt businesses, including the collapsed or in crisis now, the uh, power company Escom, because of which the electricity outages have been hurting businesses. Uh, tell us about how you viewed this budget speech and has it done anything for you? Well, the budget speech doesn't really help small business much. Um, you know, we've had to invest heavily uh, in power because, you know, we run a national call center. You know, we employ hundreds of staff. Um, they've got uh, significant issues in just getting to work when there are outages in the locations where they live. And then business is suffering because we need to invest in power, which the government should be investing in. And they should have solved this problem a long time ago. So it's a knock-on effect, um, and it's not looking pretty at the moment. Well, the government has allocated about $4 billion for ESCOM. But again, we'll have to see whether this works or not, perhaps uh, for the next government also to see what more can be done. But uh, we've been talking on World Business Report about another problem, which is a big one of unemployment. Uh, South Africa is seeing one of the worst unemployment figures in its history. How is it impacting you? Uh, well, it impacts everybody because, you know, when there's unemployment, there's crime um, and you want, you know, your economically active population to be working and contributing and we need them to do so. But government has not got the funds to invest in infrastructure and other projects. So, uh, you know, my view is that they need to be working more with the private sector because the private sector has got the ability to employ people, uh, but those cogs are moving very slowly in government. There have been some improvements in that, in that regard, but they should be embracing it at a lot faster pace. Do you get skilled workforce when you need it as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, we are trying our best. Um, you know, our business is in the tech industry, uh, so that is helping us to keep ahead of the curve. Hmm. So coming to you then, Darby, some of these issues that uh, Barry talked about, uh, throw some light on that, because now what South Africa is also looking at is a change of uh, uh, government in the sense for the election, uh, which will be around the yeah. corner. But what can the government do from here on, the new one, to ensure that the economic crisis is dealt with? Well, of course, there are a couple of things that we need to do. A starting point will be to get a government with the right ideology. The government that we have currently in South Africa in the form of the ANC is, a, let's call it a left-leaning. They got stuck somewhere ideologically-wise, somewhere in the 1920s or 1930s. They call one another comrade to start off with. So the kind of policies that we are, that they are following is a developmental policies, to use the word of the ANC, which means that the state wants to be in control of just about everything. So there's an ideological issue, and from that you have an you've got a policy issues that are simply wrong for a modern economy. Mm. On top of all of that, we have a government that is hugely incompetent. They employ people that are caters, and that this is no, no, no secret. We all know about this, and in fact, they admit to that, that they employ caters, people that are loyal to the ANC government, and not necessarily people that can actually do the job. And to make things even worse, we've got a government that is quite often quite corrupt as well. And you put all of this together, then you have a shortage of electricity, you have weak economic growth, you have a collapsing infrastructure, you have high levels of unemployment and everything that goes with that. So what we need actually is not, in fact, we don't have an economic issue in South Africa. The main problem in South Africa is politics and we need to which, fix that. Which, is, before we which is a way of looking at things. But when you when 
you actually use really harsh terms to describe the economy. Uh, Let me just ask you this as we wind this up. A lot of money is being spent on uh, education and health and servicing debts there. In fact, so much so that South Africa's current borrowings are highest since 1947. So we're actually looking at quite a lot of money and debt for the country, and it won't be resolved quite easily. So are there any ways in which you see global investor perhaps coming in, private partnership that Barry was talking about, which could help? Uh, Yes, and in fact, that is happening. Many of these services of the state is being privatized, as an example, not by design, but simply because the state has stopped functioning in many instances. Electricity is a good example. Mm. So the private sector is simply taking over those functions. So in a way, the silver lining is that the state could be uh, collapsing, but the silver lining is that the private sector is stepping into that void and filling uh, many of these services and providing many of these services that the state is supposed to be uh, providing. Thank you so much, Davi Root, Chief Economist of the Evershun Group, joining us from Johannesburg, and Barry Berman. Always a pleasure to speak with you from South Africa. So that was an overview of South Africa's economy. More of that on bbc.com. But one thing that we've been expecting on World Business Report, and that has finally happened, we've been talking about it through last week as well, is that the European Union has finally given a green light on a new package of sanctions against Russia. Now, this was widely expected, but what's not expected and what has happened is that for the first time, these sanctions are targeting the Chinese and Indian companies, which have been accused of supporting Moscow's war effort in Ukraine. There are 200 entities and individuals on this list. But the question is, Can this package of sanctions hit Russia where it really hurts? Bill Browder is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, which was the investment advisor to the largest foreign investment fund in Russia until 2005. So he knows a lot about sanctions and the workings of the Russian economy. And he joined me earlier to talk about these latest round of sanctions. I think it'll have a very big effect. It's um, This has been the elephant in the room. Everyone is saying, why are sanctions not working? And the answer is because Russia has been able to sell a lot of its oil to India and China and a few other countries. And that the, those oil sales have generated huge dollars. And those dollars have been used to purchase weapons, drones, and fund the war in Ukraine. And so this is really a necessary step to try to cut off that flow of funding to Russia. And the only way to do it is to create some type of consequences for these buyers in India and China. And if I was uh, an Indian or a Chinese company and I saw that um, I was potentially going to be blocked out of the international markets because I was trying to get a bit of cheap Russian oil, I might just say, you know what, I'm going to skip that Russian oil. These are individual entities or companies being targeted. But isn't it a signal for the governments as well that do not do business with Russia? And in a way, the governments in India and China could see this a threat from the West because Russia has been their traditional ally. Well, that's the point. We want that to happen. That's the that's the major objective. And we hope it does happen. You know, China and India shouldn't be um, allied with Russia. Russia is is uh, a major international pariah who's co- that's causing untold damage thing completely. Is, is there a challenge this, here? Because it could boomerang quite easily. China and India have always maintained that their sovereign interests, their energy security interests are paramount. And that's the reason why they continue to trade with Russia. Well, good luck to them. I mean, at the end of the day, particularly China is totally dependent on selling things to the Western world. And if they start retaliating, it's going to lead to an even greater economic disaster than they're currently experiencing. 
That was Bill Browder, founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. The agreement by EU ambassadors today will allow the measures to be formally approved ahead of the two-year anniversary of Moscow's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. Now, it's time to get you check on the markets. Danny Hewson, Head of Financial Analysis at AJ Bell, is joining us. And Danny, one stock that's been talked a lot about has been the HSBC. Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. Shares are down almost 9% today on the FTSE 100. And that is in spite of record annual profits that the bank made last year, up 78% on how much it made in 2022. A lot of that, of course, is down to the fact that interest rates, particularly in Europe and the UK, have gone up. However, the reason that the shares have fallen substantially today is because of a big write-down on its stake in Bank of Communications, which is one of China's biggest lenders. So it owns 19% of the bank, and it's written down the value of that stake by 3 billion dollars. Now, this, of course, is because of a slowdown in China's economic growth, which ultimately affects the bank's earnings and the value of its assets. And of course, we've spoken a lot about the real estate crisis, which has really impacted China. And We've got used to China really being this global economic engine, seeing double-digit economic growth. And this year, the IMF is saying that that growth is likely Mm. to come in at about 5.4%. So a lot of people are worried about HSBC's sort of exposure to Asian markets. Danny, be with me. We'll come back to you later on the programme. You're with World Business Report from the BBC World Service. When you see Iran close up, you realize just how complex a political landscape it is. The Global Story. Smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. It seems that Iran's strategy at the moment is to increase the tension in the Middle East. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. When Israel does agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, Iran will then worry about Israel then turning its sights towards Iran again. The Global Story. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now, we keep an eye on global economies on this show, and it's not a good news from Europe's largest economy. The German government has slashed the growth forecast for 2024, warning that Germany is in rough waters, dragged down by high interest rates and a weakening global economy. Our reporter, Damien McGuinness, has been watching this statement. Um, Damien, What are the reasons? Why is Germany's economy being dragged down? Well, I think it depends if you look at short term or long term. So over the past few years, Germany has been hit particularly hard by uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, Germany was particularly dependent on Russian energy. And Germany also has a very energy intensive industries. It's a very industrial economy. Now, all of that means that to pivot away from Russian energy and to find other source of energy added to the uh, efforts to pivot to green renewable sources all makes energy costs very expensive here. So that's one big thing. That's really 
also fueled uh, inflation, which has dampened down consumption. So that's what's been happening over the past few years. But that's changing now because what we're seeing is actually inflation is coming down and the predictions for this year are relatively positive in terms of consumption bouncing back. The broader problem is a more structural, more difficult problem, and that really is about an ageing population and lack of workers. So what the Economy Minister, Robert Harbeck, just said today was that there are 700,000 open vacancies in Germany. And what this means, it doesn't only mean that it's easy to find a job here, it also means that firms and companies are cutting back on production. And it means that work that needs to be done, whether it be fixing roads, whether it be installing solar panels, is not being done because you can't find the workers, both uh, whether it be qualified workers or workers in general, even without qualifications. So that's the longer term, broader problem. And that's a really difficult one to solve because what we're going to find now is there's a whole generation of people who are approaching retirement age in Germany. German pensions are relatively generous. And that means Germany, looking forward over mm. the next 10 years, is going to struggle to pay for those pensions unless they manage to up the workforce. And let's not forget how even uh, the agriculture workers and farmers, they've been on nationwide protests, putting more pressure on Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Yeah, I think that's just one part of a broader story of what you could call industrial unrest, really. Farmers protests who who are really objecting to new measures to cut tax breaks. This is all part of really you know, getting the budget back in order after a court ruling said that the German government couldn't take on new debt. But we're seeing all sorts of sectors really unhappy and going on strike. So whether it's train drivers, whether it's local transport sectors, whether it's doctors, teachers, a lot of sectors, a lot of workers feel they haven't had a pay rise in a long time. Those wages are now starting to rise, partly as a result of this strikes and the industrial action we've seen over the past few months. And again, this could, according to government predictions, lead to a boost consumption further down the year but right now I think that the mood is poor the figures are poor mm. at the moment and I think that poor mood is also affecting consumption and how the country is viewed so I think Germany almost has a feeling here that the government needs to sort of shake up the country stop arguing within the governing coalition and really try and get the economy going because the fundamentals are good but the predictions right now of the of the of of what's going to happen the next quarter is pretty dire what we call animal spirits here uh, need to be revived that's an economic term often used but damien mckinnis bbc's reporter thank you for joining us for a lowdown on that story. And we were mentioning about the winter of discontent, unrest that we've seen in Europe, particularly with farmers' protests, and that's happening in India as well, around the capital city of Delhi. Now, these sounds of tear gas shells is from Shambhu border, which is about 200 kilometers from India's capital. There was a clash between the police and the farmers who were trying to march on to capital city, Delhi. The farmers have been demanding a minimum support price guarantee or a short price for their crop from the government. But with no headway in these talks, they decided that they will walk towards Delhi with their big tractors. And that's created a problem because the border of the city has been fortified with several layers of barricades and barbed wires to stop their entry. For more, earlier I spoke with Ravneet Singh Brar, who is a farmer leader. But what we were demanding, the farmers sitting there, they were demanding MSP on all the crops. And it should be a legal document plus loan waiver. And there were more demands. But the government didn't respond to all those demands even after sitting for almost a week. So today morning, they gave a call 
to reach Delhi. The government again started this tear gas and each and everything. So a uh, few people got injured, also few farmers and few youth also got injured. And still they are on borders and there is a tiff between security forces and farmers which is going on at moment right now. The government has said they're willing to talk about MSP, which is minimum support price demand that the farmers have. Hmm. Why is it that till now that demand hasn't been met? What are the objections? There are a lot many objections from the government side because what they are saying, they, they are coming with different theories every time. MSP is announced for 23 crops by government. But when it comes to procurement, only wheat and paddy is procured on MSP. So there is a lot of exploitation of farmers. So what we are demanding is it's just like a floor price, which is set up in uh, like we call it a floor price in United States. And over here, we call it MSP. Like the MSP is uh, supposed for something, it's for 2000 Indian rupees. Hmm. But market price is 1800. So why can't government fill the gap of 200? What you're saying is if the minimum guaranteed price by the government is set at, say, $24, while the market price is $18 for the same crop, the government should be able to fill that gap. But uh, then there is a question of government finances because it's taxpayers' money and there is only limited amount of money. The government on its own part won't be able to sustain this kind of a system for a long time. So uh, what about the farmers? Even they are sustaining. If other countries can pump in so much money, even the subsidies, why can't we copy-paste the subsidies that a farmer is getting? So what we Indian farmers are getting, 6,000 rupees. That is almost uh, less than $100. It's almost $80 a year. That is the scheme government is giving to the Indian farmers. So if farmer is working for the country day and night, now he needs country support. Why can't the people of our country or the government of our country support farmers? Are you ready for Gee. the kind of protest that was there in 2020 when thousands of farmers camped at Delhi borders for months and months? Are you ready for that kind of long haul if these talks continue and there are no results? Is it See, remember, uh, one thing? W- w- one thing is for sure. There is the uh, our constitution allow us for peaceful protests and we want always uh, if government is not listening we are ready to protest peacefully but what government is doing from other side rubber shelling is done and tear gases are thrown so we are part of this country we want the government to sit on table and talk to us and there is always a, a middle way out of uh, each and everything That was Ravneet Singh Brar, farmer leader, speaking to me, one of the protesting leaders in uh, the demonstration in which the protesting Indian farmers say one person has been killed as well. Now, moving on, you may remember that Russia was banned from the Olympics last year and from several other major sporting events. It's in response to the war in Ukraine, but that hasn't deterred Russian President Vladimir Putin. До старта игр будущего остается не так много времени. That's the Russian president Putin last year announcing the launch of what's being called the Games of the Future. And they're due to officially open in the eastern Russian city of Kazan. In just a few minutes time from now, 
It's an experimental tournament with millions of dollars of prize money at stake and it blends esports with traditional sports. And, well, what are esports for that? Jake Nordlin has been writing about this and joined me earlier to explain it all. Esports is where professional gamers compete against each other in tournaments, either online or in person, in competitive video games like Fortnite or League of Legends. It's a global billion-dollar industry, and, and there's a lot of money in it at the top level. Uh, the big tournaments these days often take place in sports stadiums and are, are broadcast across the world uh, over the internet and sometimes on TV to, to millions of viewers. And one of those big games is this Games of the Future that's happening in Russia. Yeah, so so this is a, a new tournament that we've not really seen anything like it before. So Games of the Future combines esports with physical activity. It's a, a concept that they're calling digital sports. The event has an eight million pound prize pool, and it reportedly has about forty six million pounds in funding from the Russian government. So Vladimir Putin himself and the Russian Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Chernyshenko both directly involved, despite both being subject to international sanctions. China's president, Xi Jinping, said China would cooperate with Russia for the event. Uh, It's also sponsored by multiple Russian state-owned companies, uh, including Gazprom and and Russian Railways, which are also themselves uh, sanctioned. So despite this, this political situation and the ongoing war in Ukraine, some very high-profile esports teams have chosen to attend. We've seen teams based in the US, uh, China, Peru, Turkey, the Philippines, Indonesia, and, and many more are attending. And it's it's not particularly surprising to see teams from East and Southeast Asia going, mm. given that many governments in the region have taken more neutral stances on the war in Ukraine. But to see Western companies and players attending is very surprising. Uh, especially given that sanctions mean it will be very difficult to legally receive prize money. We've actually seen a a few teams pull out already, potentially for those legal and and maybe reputational reasons. If you look at these games, how crucial are they in in the present context of geopolitics scenario that Russia hosts them? Yeah, no, I think they are very, very important for Russia. I mean, when uh, Chernyshenko, the deputy prime minister, when he first announced the games in 2021, so this is actually before the invasion, but he supposedly said uh, the Olympic movement had lost its founding values of uh, like uniting nations through sports. So I think Russia sees it as a way to sort of get involved in international mm-hmm. sports and competition while controlling the narrative that they're saying, you know, if you if you want to kick us out of the Olympics, we're going to do our own thing. There are other challenges, aren't there, for this game, including the intellectual property rights for some of the games that will be used? Yes, no, exactly. So for context, to run a large esports competition, you need permission from the game developer or the publisher because they own the rights to the game. So all esports tournaments over a certain size will typically require a license or approval from the game publisher. And what's remarkable about this tournament is that very likely it doesn't it hasn't been granted approval. So the the publishers of the games involved, especially the Western ones, probably wouldn't grant a license to a, a Russian state funded event. We don't actually have official confirmation that it's unlicensed, but it's quite obvious uh, that they said no. For example, in December in last year, they the Russian parliament discussed a new law 
that would let Russian esports tournaments run without needing approval from from game publishers. And we've never seen a, a tournament of this scale ever go ahead without permission. Uh, if it, if it is unlicensed, it's you know a, an unprecedented challenge to IP rights holders in esports. That's Jake Noland, journalist for Esports Insider, talking about the big games of the future, digital, physical and digital games on World Business Report. Thank you for being with us from the team of Lexi, Lucy, Victoria, Stephen and me, Devina. That's it for this edition of the World Business Report podcast with me, Devina Gupta. We always want to hear from you. You can email us at any time on world.business at bbc.co.uk. See you next time. Namaste.